Hi, I'm Brendan Ma, Chair of the APS College of Clinical Psychologists. We are always looking for ways to provide you with the highest quality information to inform your practice. 2020 is going to be a difficult year for members to meet face-to-face, -face, so we're planning to help keep us connected through our social media, online discussion forum, emails, webinars, and for the first time, through podcasts just like this one. There is an untapped wealth of knowledge and experience that expert clinicians hold, and we want to share it with you. So enjoy. Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. This is a podcast by clinical psychologists for clinical psychologists. It will introduce you to experts in a wide range of fields relevant to the practice of clinical psychology, and I hope you'll find it engaging and informative. As I record this first episode, the world finds itself in turmoil. It's March 2020, and we are dealing with a rapidly changing COVID-19 pandemic. We're coming to terms with how to best deliver mental health services through remote technologies such as telehealth. And our psychology practices will be all very, very different for the foreseeable future. We'll also need to change the way we learn and hone our professional skills. In the current landscape, we can't attend conferences or run workshops or training days. Even getting together for informal peer-to-peer -peer professional development is problematic. Clinically thinking is being supported by the APS, the Australian Psychological Society. In each episode, I'll introduce you to an educator or respected practitioner to help keep you up to date with the latest research and the latest ideas on their particular psychological topic. Our first guest on Clinically Thinking is Dr. Tracy Wade. Matthew Flinders Distinguished Professor Tracy Wade has worked as a clinician in the area of eating disorders for almost 30 years. Her current research interests are in the etiology, prevention and treatment of these disorders, with a focus on implementing this research into the real-world settings to improve the outcomes of those with body image and eating disorders. She has co-written three therapy books and has over 200 publications in peer-reviewed journals. In 2019, she was appointed Fellow of the APS and a recipient of the Australian and New Zealand Academy of Eating Disorders Distinguished Achievement Award. She is currently an Associate Editor for the International Journal of Eating Disorders and the Director of the Flinders University Services for Eating Disorders. I could go on and tell you more about Tracy's bio, but I think we might run out of time for our interview. Welcome, Tracy. You grew up in Adelaide, South Australia, attending Norwood High School. Most of your friends were doing, planning on doing medicine, but you chose psychology. Why was that? I guess I had a, a reaction to, to what was being said at the time, which was because I got the marks, I would do medicine. To me, that didn't seem to be a good enough reason to pick a particular career. I felt you needed a bit more passion behind that choice and a little bit more specific direction and just because you get the marks of course doesn't mean that you're going to be a good GP or, or medical doctor. So my thinking at the time, I, for, I guess I was interested in psychology because I did like talking to people and trying to understand what was going on for them 
and of course try to help them. So I fixed on psychology at that point and I decided to do a, a science undergraduate degree majoring in psychology. And so I, you know, found that it really suited me. I, I actually did have a science background, so the statistics was wonderful. I enjoyed that compared to the poor art students. Yes, and many of them didn't really enjoy it, did they? <laughs> they? They looked terrified the whole time. And I enjoyed the experimental nature of it, and, uh, you know, it really suited me. I, I guess in those days, too, there, there weren't that many options. There was a Bachelor of Arts or a Bachelor of Science with psychology rather than these days there being a, a Bachelor of psych- Psychology, you know, that you do with some other subjects on the side. Life was much simpler back then. You, you know, <laughs> it was BA, of course. BSc, that was medicine, about it. Yes. engineering, or law. I think that was, you know, if you were getting good marks. Um, that was, And even going to university back then was still a, a more rare event than it is now. And uh, I was just keen to really do something that I had a passion that for. That you had a passion for. Simply do it. Yeah, makes sense. So how did you get from um, your science degree to eating disorders? Yeah, I had always intended to be a clinician. So I did honours, of course, and got entry into the master's degree. And as chance had it, the last placement I did as part of my master's was at the counselling service at um, Australian National University. And they decided in a fairly random way that they, for the first time, would offer groups for people with eating disorders. And They're they, a new thing back then, were they? That was new, and I don't think they had many people presenting for eating disorders, so they had no idea what the demand would be. And, and so, what was the demand? Well, they advertised, and instead of one group, we had to run two. Ah, bigger than expected. Much bigger. And so I was able to participate in those groups. And what I just, I still remember sitting there and the reaction of seeing all these very bright, attractive, personable young women who believe they're absolutely no good. So there's this real contradiction in terms. Yeah. Terrific women, but hated themselves. What what I was seeing is absolutely the opposite to what they were seeing of themselves. And it, so it was a little bit of a women's issue for me because they also therefore were not contributing in a way that was commensurate with their skills, with their abilities, because they were hiding away, they were not confident and they were simply not contributing. And so I became very concerned about that. And then just absolutely by chance, my next job after finishing my master's was at Cambridge University. I was a therapist in their Berlin University Clinic. And I was very privileged to be supervised there by Peter Cooper. And he, of course, was the person who co-wrote the chapter with Chris Fairburn, the first cognitive behaviour therapy approach for Berlin University. I don't know if you remember, Lisa, but it's in that book, Cognitive Behaviour Therapy for Psychiatric Problems, that was edited by Horton. I remember it well. It's It was my favourite book of the time. Um, I read it everywhere. I read every chapter cover to cover, used it extensively. I think in those days we used to buy books from conferences mm-hmm. and uh, I certainly thought that one of the AACBT conferences and used it extensively. So yes, uh, I absolutely remember that one. Yeah, so that was a revolution for me because I hadn't really come across cognitive behaviour therapy before. And so... I think I think actually a cognitive behaviour therapy took a little while to get to Australia, didn't yes. it, back in those days before the internet. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> there was a time before the internet that we both remember. And we still had aerograms that you would write. 
And so it was... I don't remember aerograms. You must be older than me. (laughs) (laughs) But it... Uh, it was great to, to be supervised in offering CBT for bulimia nervosa at that very early point. And I guess the, the other revolution for me was seeing people who were doing the research and the clinical work as well. Uh, but the, the eating disorder work in the clinic was done with a lot of Cambridge University students. And I came across that same issue of very bright people who were very personable, who again believed that they were completely worthless. And the eating disorder was their way of trying to manage that. So that's why I originally became interested in eating disorders. And that was uh, that was the area of interest, that was the point, was it, to, to think that these very intelligent, uh, otherwise wonderful women uh, hated themselves and made kind of no sense at some level. So. How then did you get to PhD, to writing, to starting a PhD? What was the journey there? So the journey really was uh, from working in the UK. A lot of people at that point had a clinical background as well as a PhD. And they were integrating their research and their clinical work. And they were doing that really Cognitive behaviour therapy came out of UK, it was a hotbed at that point. Yes, it was. And you had people doing groundbreaking work in schizophrenia, in eating disorders, in depression. Yes, I certainly remember the AACBT conferences of those days, with often the uh, the Oxford group mm. were coming to Australia. and that's, Yes, certainly that was where I um, got most of my knowledge base from those various conferences back in the day. Yeah. Um, and they really were teaching uh, CBT in a way that we hadn't had in Australia. Mm. Yeah. And combining research with clinical practice in yes, a way. Yes, that's right. So I, I found that inspirational. And so basically I decided that I would do a PhD when I got back to Australia. And that's what I, I did. And I did it in eating disorders because at that point it had very firmly held my interest. Uh, but I slightly, I guess, deviated from, I uh, didn't look at the clinical issues, I was more interested in the etiology at that point and particularly interested in the genetics versus the environment because at that point in eating disorders, the families were blamed. Uh-huh. And they were blamed because of the environment they provided for their children, not because of any genetic contribution. And so, again, that very disrespectful sort of the families are basically screwed. We have to almost do a family ectomy in <laughs> order to help the person get better. That's certainly a stereotype, isn't it, you know, of the family? Or how much do you think that is still a stereotype in society? I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but just... To... Yeah, it's still there when you do surveys of clinicians and uh, people out in the field, they often... We'll talk about the role of families and blaming families. And certainly in terms of, um, it's just like any other field. The fa- some families are unhelpful and some are helpful. Yeah. They're not particularly unhelpful in eating disorders. We all come across uh, people that um, are helpful and other people, f- for whatever reason, maybe because of their own problems, are not able to be helpful. But certainly the field has moved to the point now where if we can at all involve families, significant others, we try to do that because eating disorders are so hard to tackle. As much environmental support as you can muster is really critical and we have a a lot of 
committed families out there who have done a very fine job in helping provide treatment mm. at home. Just one last question about you in terms of your overall career trajectory. You finished a PhD and then at some point moved into academia. Uh, why that actual uh, direction? Why not use your wonderful skills and uh, knowledge base in uh, the clinical world? Why, why academia for you? I guess for me it was an easier way to do serious quality research but I have actually brought my clinical with me. I haven't left it behind. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. So um, I'm the director of the Flinders University Services for Eating Disorders here. So we actually have an eating disorder clinic. It sees about 50 people a year. I supervise students to offer services, but I continue to see just a, a small group of people with very difficult forms of anorexia nervosa who haven't responded to other forms of treatment. So I think it's critical that you continue. Uh, this gives me the chance to, to do major research, but it also gives me the chance to maintain clinical work that, again, makes a difference and it helps treat, not only treat people, but it all help, also helps train clinicians. Mm. And many of those clinicians have gone on in the field to set up their own practices to specialise in eating disorders, to work for the government in eating disorders. So it's very much also building up capacity of the field to treat eating disorders. It is very hard to get that balance uh, between clinical and research. I remember in, when I was applying for my master's, you know, we're talking about the scientist practitioner model and it was all the go. But it's very hard to achieve, uh, it seems to me, in, dare I say, the real world. What are no, your I thoughts? Think it, is, it is very hard to achieve. You can do case studies, and that's what I did when I was working mm. primarily as a clinician. To do the, the bigger research does require more time, and it requires resources that mm. our universities and grant bodies can provide. And to be competitive to get a grant, you need to be able to spend more time. So I think for clinicians, what people might be looking to is just that they are informed by the research, and that they are devouring the research that they're reading it and understand because things change very quickly in psychology and people need to keep up with that but um, and I do certainly encourage people if they have case studies to, to try to publish those because that often can inform the field about some new innovations that might be worth looking at more closely. Tracy, I'm interested in the development of the treatment uh, for eating disorders over the last 20 or 30 years. Can you bring us up to speed with that? Mm -hmm. It's been quite a journey because 30 years ago we were still blaming the families and we were seeing that the families caused the eating disorder by the way they interacted with their child and particularly fashionable back 30 years ago was the controlling, over-controlling mother, the passive father sort of the mother blaming yes. quite often. Yes. Um, we've all been through that, I think, with various disorders. And so there were therapies that were based around trying to, to change the family functioning. It was actually my PhD thesis that we started to focus on the role of genetic contribution. Because uh, your PhD was in tw twin studies? Twins and doing gen mathematical modelling to look at gene versus environmental contributions to eating disorders. And the, the evidence, of course, now has skyrocketed, but we now know that there's a very hefty contribution of genes to the development of eating disorders. It's about, on average, 50%. So that's really the reason why eating disorders run in families. 
it's not because you've got toxic family environments. Yes, that makes more sense. It's yes. because of the genetic contribution. So you do see eating disorders running in families. That's the thing, Absolutely, is it? yeah. And, and certainly there are such things as unhelpful families. We're not going to say that every family is helpful. There are some families that are more concerned about appearance and weight and transmit those messages. But we also know, for example, a really unhelpful environment is peer teasing about appearance when people are in early adolescence. So there's a number of environments that, that can be unhelpful. So that's another major development which has helped us to move from parent blaming to actually enlisting parents as partners in treatment. Quite, quite a shift then, isn't it? Absolute shift. Mm-hmm. And you can't, of course, do it with every family. And the, the therapy, particularly with adolescents with anorexia nervosa, is very taxing for families. We do um, ask them to basically provide treatment at home, refeeding their child, maintaining a united front, not getting caught up in the emotion. And Very hard. A lot to ask, isn't it, over yeah. family member of a family? A lot to ask, and it's more than we would usually ask of in other psychiatric disorders. Very true. Uh, apart perhaps from psychosis, but it's certainly a huge burden for families. So that's currently where we're at. We know that's a good therapy for teenagers. It means we can move them quickly away from the eating disorder and help them to avoid the worst pitfalls. But it does have a heavy toll. On I family. guess I'm thinking also with eating disorders, there's a, a, a underweight, a very underweight teenager that kind of chronically teetering towards medical instability um, in a way perhaps it's different from other psychiatric disorders. Would that be right? There's certainly more urgency. More urgency, And right. part of that therapy is to say to parents, your child can die. This is the, certainly anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality of any psychiatric disorder. And you need to do this to keep your child alive. And that's motivating, I imagine, for parents. It's, it's certainly motivating. And it, it, it's really saying it's a bit like the COVID environment at the moment. Yes. You really have to do this to save lives. And so people snap into action because of that imperative. Yes, yes. And so the community or social imperative, isn't there? Yeah. A yeah, similar so thing to family. Yeah. And um, unfortunately for adult anorexia nervosa, uh, we don't have a really effective therapy at the moment. We have three or four outpatient therapies, which are all much better than doing nothing. And they help about 30% of people to remission. They might significantly help the remainder of people, but they don't get them to that point of remission. So we, we do a lot worse with that, whereas we know that CBT is very good for bulimia nervosa, uh, very effective. But again, it only produces remission for about 50 to 60% of people. The rest still have residual symptoms. So generally all around, we need to actually... We've come a long way with... Understanding eating disorders, we've come a long way with developing effective treatments over the 30 years, but in the future we actually need to do a lot better. So there's, if I'm getting this right, uh, with bulimia, CBT produces about 50-60% to remission rates, but with uh, anorexia, not so good. Mm. More like 30%? 30% for adult anorexia nervosa. With Children and adolescents using the family approach, the remission rate is probably closer to 60 to 70%. Still much better, but with still a significant proportion of people who are not... Are they responding at all? Yeah, they are. They are getting benefit, but they're not reaching that remission point. And some people, of course, don't respond. Some people can't do family-based therapy. So we are seeing significant improvements, but not... 
it's nothing to sit back on your laurels and say, oh, well. Yeah, we've done it. We've, at nothing... least they're better than when they yeah. came in. Yeah, nothing left to do here. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really the thing that interests me is how to make our therapies more effective in the future or to basically augment them or make them just more successful exactly. um, <laughs> increase those recovery mm. rates mm. so on that what do you where do you think the research is going from here what's the future hold do you think mm-hmm. for research in this area i think what i would like to think is that we're going to move more to a personalized medicine approach which means look what the person's bringing and uh we have we know that Effective therapy is about refeeding people, getting them back to good nutrition and then building therapy on that. It's how to get them through those stages. So for some people, I believe there'll be more neurobiological sort of work that might need to be done, like brain stimulation type work. Uh, We're going to understand more about the genes and the different metabolic pathways that may contribute as well. So we might possibly target those with novel medications that we hadn't really thought about. So that is a a piece but that won't be relevant for everyone some people do respond well some people need more help and we need to figure out who those people are in a more personalized way yeah so are you thinking that maybe um kind of the talky therapies have run their course a bit maybe we have there isn't much new to be done in this area i'm thinking about the um, recent insight uh, aps insight magazine which looked at the current um, evidence base and the best data, if I remember rightly, of course, was around uh, CBT-type approaches and family-based therapy and the, some of the third-wave, so-called third-wave therapies that, are, uh, that have, exist these days have produced some, some results. But, um, but what, are your thoughts about, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think, I think we've squeezed as much water out of that sponge as we can. I think <laughs> we've actually... We have been good at developing psychotherapies. There are four that are equally effective for anorexia nervosa. We've got CBT for bulimia nervosa. Interpersonal psychotherapy is also good. Some third wave, we haven't got that much data on the third wave therapies, but they look as good. What we're not getting is a psychotherapy that is ahead above the rest. I see, yeah, something that's really showing some differences. Yeah, so I think we're just rearranging the chairs now. I think we're not actually... Hopefully not the Titanic, though. Not, hopefully not the... <laughs> I did stop myself before I watched <laughs> the Titanic. We have enough doom and gloom in the current environment. <laughs> so true. Without invoking the Titanic. But I... Um, yeah, I think we do need to think more out of the box. We need to think, as I said, perhaps of more neurostimulation-type approaches. We need to think about that personalised issue. If people come with a greater trauma background, are there things that we need to to do in a preparatory way before well that's interesting so perhaps incorporating some other uh other therapeutic approaches to with with the current um uh, therapeutic approaches for the various eating disorders so maybe more uh imagery restricting for example Mm. if there was a trauma focus or traumatic beginning to their anorexia Mm. Is that what the sort of is that the sort of thing we're certainly experimenting and imagery scripting is a good um example because we're using that with people who have high levels of disordered eating not necessarily an eating disorder very brief intervention and we see uh, an immediate drop in their disordered eating and also an improvement in their body image so that's something perhaps you're breaking up some rocks before you do the therapy breaking up the rocks yeah so it doesn't have to be lengthy but it can be preparatory work we're doing the same thing we're about to start another study using uh, cognitive remediation therapy and we're going to offer it 
a short sort of uh, therapy. It's really skills training just before we start therapy proper. And it's about helping people become more flexible in their thinking, improve their set shifting, and also enlarge their ability to see bigger picture rather than just the detail. So that central coherence work, which you could imagine may then make them more receptive or able to take up therapy. It reminded me of um, some of the attention training work. The, when talking about cognitive remediation, uh, it reminds me of the attention training of the 90s when we're talking about social anxiety of getting people to uh, change their perception. You know, we're, we're looking at from behind their eyes rather than looking in as if they're watching themselves mm-hmm. and, the, and the kind of a difference that made to the mm-hmm. social anxiety disorder mm-hmm. literature. It seems like a sort of a parallel way uh, approach to um, eating disorder treatment. Yeah, it's changing perspective, not, I guess, from another person, but yeah. it's, it's that big picture, small picture, being able to zoom in and out we talk about and getting people, you know, to, to really move that perspective so they can start to do that, but also develop a few skills, give them a bit of neuropsychological feedback about their thinking and get them to practice it with everyday situations so that they get to, to, to make their brain a bit more flexible. So what do you think the future holds for uh, the treatment of eating disorders? Well, I think our immediate future is obviously the telehealth challenge absolutely i think everyone is grappling with that and i think we're doing a fine job as a country generally being flexible in the face of quite as everyone's saying an unprecedented event yes i think telehealth can propose some extra special challenges for eating disorders because we do expect to do in session weighing for example. Yes, and essential, isn't it? Absolutely. And pick up those hot cognitions and reactions in Straight session. Straight away, yep. And work with them in session. Keeping, keeping this therapy on the boil. Mm. And also the weighing is part of a behavioural experiment about they've changed their eating over the previous week. Has it impacted on their weight like they were predicting? And unpacking that information there and then, that is what we consider yep. to yes. be powerful. Absolutely. So... Yeah, I think we, we absolutely need to think about how to do weighing on telehealth and certainly my colleagues and I have got some suggestions about that. I think if the person is able to do it, if, if you've got a, an online session, they can do it at home in the session there and then, take a photo of the weight and send it through and you can then talk about that and the impact just in the real time just as you would if the person themselves can't manage that carers or family might be able to support them in doing that in the session or as a fallback I guess they can certainly see the GP weekly and get that weighing done and that can be communicated which should be happening anyway but never it's never been more important is it has it been to have that medical uh that medical management medical follow-up i i think it's absolutely critical i think we talk about this virtual team that we expect of people with eating disorders there should at least be a gp involved and because of the obviously huge physical problems that people with eating disorders have i think and if we're not seeing them face to face and it's a bit harder to pick up deterioration it's absolutely critical that they are seeing their gp face to face where possible and uh, getting that, if, if medically they're a bit challenged, to do that weekly and that's where the weighing could occur. I guess one of the uh, things about weighing that uh, I've noticed has been really useful is has been that um, objective evidence mm-hmm. of either weight gain, weight stabilisation or weight loss 
um, humans can be a bit, um, a bit vague and noticing sometimes that someone's lost weight or changed weight and the weight, what the weighing is that objective notion is that you, the weight has either for the, for the therapist as much as for the client to, to keep that on track. Do you, what do you think about that? No, I think it's absolutely right. I think it's objective for the client because they'll often come in, we get them to predict how much weight they've gained and I'll often come and saying, I think I've gained three kilos, I feel really fat today. And we say, okay, all right. And what does the scale say? You're exactly what you were last week. How can we put that information together? When yes. you say you're feeling fat, what yes. does that really yes. mean? Yes, having a fat day, but the, the, the facts are your weight is exactly what it's it was. What does that mean? Yeah. But for the therapist, I think it's also objective because clients with things sort of say can wear baggy clothing it's so true. you can't see any deterioration. And Or else, if you're worried about the person, you you can think that they look like they've lost more weight this week when in fact they haven't. So it does give you that check and balance too, just in terms of dealing with real information in session Mm. and dealing with those facts because the weight is such an emotive issue. We just try and deal with the facts. We look at, you know, the collaborative weighing, graphing that, looking at trends, looking at what impacts it, uh, looking at predictions. Certainly found that um, useful myself in graphing the weight um, over each week with a client and presenting or discussing, not presenting it to them, but discussing it with them each week so, that, so they can see um, hopefully a weight gain um, ever so slightly or gradually. Um, find that very, very helpful for building motivation, you know, and encouragement and collaboration. Yeah, there's absolutely, I always say a, a picture's worth a thousand words in therapy. Graphing progress with binging purging, graphing progress with weight gain and anorexia, and showing that it doesn't just shoot up, which is their prediction. Yes, yes. And I always make the point that gaining weight when you're starving is extremely difficult work. And so um, people are surprised at how long it takes, even though they might be eating quite a lot. And it's really important to explain to people that... When people are starving, a lot of those initial calories, what happens is metabolism starts to improve, becomes more efficient. But also a lot of the calories are expended on just mending major organs. Mm. Liver, heart, brain in particular are all impacted by starvation. They all, you know, the brain, particularly the white matter, starts to expand. It starts to look more like a brain that has Alzheimer's. Now that is reversible, but that's where the nutrition is working. It's on that the, the body's main priority at this stage is not to gain weight, it's to stay alive. It's to heal, isn't it? And yeah. to heal and to have organs actually functioning properly and then it can start to think about the weight gain. So the graphing of the weight really captures the, that time, that gradual process, and but it, it is motivating for people that are trying really hard to eat more to start to see this upward trend, even if it's, you know, gradual. Creeping up they start to feel that they're getting somewhere. I certainly haven't ever thought about the healing and the use of energy in quite that way. I guess I've thought about it in terms of gaining weight, but not in so much as the body and the liver and the kidneys and the brain and so forth, just the using energy and taking energy to heal. Because I think we tend to, in community, we tend to think about calories for weight or for shape, but not so much for what, is, what are the organs actually need to function properly. It's a very good way of helping think about the weight gain i'm interested to know uh, also more about this paper that um, you're currently writing in regards to the telehealth so uh, colleagues around the world including myself have uh, put together a paper we've submitted it to the international journal of eating disorders 
and it's talking about using telehealth in uh, for eating disorders. And we're trying to get it out fairly quickly and disseminate it widely. Terrific. Hoping it will be open access because we've just put together ideas on what is working for people across the world when they're doing this work with eating disorders. So it has lots of suggestions from just what sort of platforms are helpful, how to use free apps on the phone to scan documents so that yes. you can share them. Great, great idea. Yeah. Uh, how to do the weighing, as I talked you know, talked about a few ideas here. How to do mirror exposure, is that going to work in that format? And also, I think importantly, we talk about not watching out for therapist drift because I think that can get a little bit easier when you're online because you might be distracted by just having the session and feel a little bit out of control and just start focusing on managing distress rather than saying, no, this is about recovery Mm. and I expect us to do the same work Mm. that we would be doing if it was face-to-face. So it's business as usual, you know, this is the the way we approach it is the same uh, focus on the therapeutic goals as we've always had. We're not going to allow ourselves to be distracted by the technology and we we expect that from our clients. We expect them to focus because we set in the agenda Mm. and uh, uh, encourage them to focus on the therapeutic goals. And I guess I'm thinking um, of using and using Zoom and the technology, whether it's phone and whatever you're doing, when you've got yourself and your client, you can see each other. I'm recalling when I first started to use Zoom for meetings that I was a little distracted by myself and or oh, is my hair look all right and how big do I look here and what, what a silly face I'm pulling. But, you know, more seriously, it can provide a really good opportunity for their immediate feedback to us and to our clients in particular of how they, their emotions, how they're portrayed, you know, and because um, it's a close-up, there you are, mm. and that you, some of those distractions, in fact, are not necessarily present because it's just you, your, your face and the client's face. And I'm, I'm Possibly using a really. Zoom for my three-hour teaching seminars to our postgraduates, and I say to them, this is actually going to be worse for you than having me in the same room because you will be having my face right in front of your face. Yes. And you'll be less able to get away with any inattention. Yes, if you yawn, I'll see that really closely. Absolutely. But so I think it's, <laughs> it's really important that we make sure our clients understand that telehealth is not a second-best option. We can complete the same work, the same progress using telehealth. We might have to be a bit more creative. We might have to be a bit more focused. But I believe that we can actually have the same progress using telehealth as face-to-face. And what do you see as being some of the challenges of uh, telehealth in this space? Yeah, I, I still am very keen to offer clients the choice. In oh, terms of coming in face to face versus doing online sessions, what are your th- what are your thoughts about that? We are finding that clients are keen to come in face to face. On the whole, not all of them, but it obviously it it. I think um, I want to be able to offer that choice. I think. Um, we maybe should, for every client, give them at least one session on telehealth just so we can test out our beliefs about whether it's worse or better for yes, them. Yes, yeah. So I think, because who knows, we might get yes. to the point where that is the only option. We just don't know. Yeah. So we probably need to test out those beliefs. But I think, you know, maybe it's old-fashioned of me, but it is just nothing quite replaces the face-to-face. It's like, for me, nothing quite replaces having a hard book in your hand. Yes. It's it's just nice to have that face-to-face, that that 
um, I guess, containment, that it's a safe area, they know what to expect. And particularly, unfortunately, in some homes, we know that spending too much time with loved ones can actually create more tension. And there is a worry about increased domestic violence, for example, with our current events. And so... Coming into the therapeutic space gives people that that safe space. It's the space they come to meet with Dr Wade and have their therapy um, and it becomes that therapeutic space. Is that, is that Absolutely. Yes. And so it gives them a break and it mm. gives them a... Um, probably it helps them step aside from everyday life for a, a free-thinking type of yes. feeling yeah. where they can step aside from being trapped in thoughts and it you know, can actually... That physical movement away yes. and externalizes perhaps helps externalize yes. the eating disorder yeah. or whatever it might be and yeah. yes and it's part of it's part of the therapy which of course you're encouraging that externalizing aren't you that's the eating disorders they're out there not yep. who they are that's right and the therapeutic space becomes part of that yeah so i think i would hope and i we psychology therapy is an essential service so i would hope that we can always keep our door open for those who wish to take that up and that's certainly what I'm intending to do and for some people that physical containment is just really going to be important but for many others telehealth will be just as effective to get some of that work done. I wonder uh, given that our uh, audience are clinical psychs uh, I wonder what your thoughts are about where clinical psychologists fit in as, as providers of treatments for those with eating disorders what's your thoughts are as an educator? Mm-hmm. I guess I, I do see that, or I believe that clinical psychologists will have a greater appreciation of evidence and the value of protocol, because that's what they get a lot of in their postgraduate training, is evidence-based research. They do a little bit of research themselves. and Case formulation. Case formulation, and we, we really, you know, get them to use that to guide their therapy. And so particularly for eating disorder therapy where I'm saying keeping to the protocol is important, uh, I think maybe clinical psychologists, that's more second nature for them, I, I would imagine. Absolutely. So, um, but also that they can understand why they do that and the benefit of that and convince their client for that and because they themselves appreciate it and, you know, you need that to be able to bring your client on board. So I think that is certainly something that clinical psychologists can bring. Uh, yes, bringing, and I guess I'm wondering with, with the training of clinical psychs around, you know, diagnosis and uh, said formulation and assessment, whether that gives them any particular role in, in, this, in this area. Well, you've, you've mentioned case formulation, certainly our understanding of the, the theory and the, the model behind eating disorders is very important for guiding therapy so those case formulation skills that appreciation of really the most parsimonious explanation of what's going on so you can focus your therapy because you have to remember that people with eating disorders are quite cognitively impaired they might not appear particularly impaired and they might say they're fine but they have that layer of of starvation and binge eating and vomiting which is impairing their thinking. Yes, of course. And if we're trying, if our therapies don't have sort of a clear central direction, if we're putting too much in, 
then that's not going to help our client. That's just going to confuse them. So I think that ability to have that parsimonious case formulation, which then informs what are the essential aspects of therapy for this person, that again is an invaluable skill with people with eating disorders. Sometimes the referrals come um, for uh, treating an eating disorder. Sometimes they're not as clear, perhaps, as we might like to, to think they are. You know, I'm wondering whether a, a clinical psych is a bit particular skill will have particular skills in um, uh, diagnostic skills you know assess and also then in assessing because you might have a, a referral especially in private practice where there's a, a referral for an eating disorder you know what does that mean and the clinical psych um, I would I'd hope by their training would be able to provide a clearer diagnosis around the exact nature of the eating disorder that would be specific you do need to have very good assessment skills and you need to have very clear thinking because of that comorbidity and also thinking about Asperger's syndrome, which is, you know, there's a lot of interest now about how that coincides with eating disorders and trying to understand what might be something more related to Asperger than to the eating disorder. There's also the, the issue of um, figuring out how depression impacts on what you're seeing and whether that's something that needs to be treated before the eating disorder. We also have our food on the scene now, which is the avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which looks a lot like an eating disorder, but it's not uh, really based on any body image or weight concern. It's about sensation of food, which again can be very comorbid with an Asperger's syndrome. And so people need to not be fooled by you know, what's presenting. They need to understand you know, what, where it's coming from, what it's actually about. Um, we do need to understand diagnosis because the treatments for anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa are different. I think you can do CBT, for example, for both, but the, CB, the form of CBT used with anorexia nervosa is different and enhanced compared to bulimia nervosa. So you need to understand at least that basic diagnostic differential. Well, these, these are indeed challenging times for all of us, for therapists, for clients, for everybody alike. And thank you so much for sparing so much of your valuable time to us today and uh, stay well. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. I hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll join us again soon for another conversation from the wide world of clinical psychology. Please subscribe to Clinically Thinking so you don't miss the next episode. You can also follow us and interact with our Facebook page. You may like to share feedback, comments or questions about the topic we've just listened to or even leave a suggestion for someone you'd like to hear from in the future. We are traversing difficult times and this could be a helpful way to build our professional community. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends. Get the word out so others can join us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. Thanks for listening.